This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. For the uh, past couple of weeks, actually for a month or so, we've been talking about the end times, been talking about prophecy. And on Sunday, I shared with you several times that one of the reasons why there's such an intensity, an urgency, I feel, when it comes to preaching about us and about the end times and about sanctification and living a Christ-like life is because we're running out of time. And many people interpret that running out of time, meaning, oh, the rapture is going to take place, which it could, Oh, the second coming of Christ is coming, which it can after some events take place. But there's a there's a, a bigger reason why that I've been trying to share that with you. And I know I've never really verbalized it to you. And that's what I want to do tonight. I told Karen as I was preparing this, I said, really, this, this is a Sunday morning sermon. Everybody needs to hear this. But uh, I want to share it with you tonight. It's called the wrath of uh, God's wrath of his abandonment. Because that can take place a long time before the rapture takes place. And as a matter of fact, we see that in Second Timothy chapter 4, in the latter days. They, the church, will turn aside from sound doctrine and will collect for themselves pastors and teachers and evangelists and celebrities that will tell them exactly what they want to hear. We're living in the middle of that. And uh, when we're talking about God's wrath, there's a, there's several types of wrath of God that the Scripture talks about. There's eternal wrath. And that's basically the wrath that lost people will suffer from the Lord when he throws them in hell, separated from him forever. None of us have a problem with that. There's something called eschatological, that's eschatological wrath, which is, of course, the end times wrath. And that's the wrath that we find in the book of Revelation after the abomination of desolation, where God pours his wrath out on unbelieving mankind. We have cataclysmic wrath. Sometimes God brings hurricanes and earthquakes and tornadoes and terrible things, cataclysmic events that he brings on people to bring them away from their stubbornness and away from their pride into a devotion to him. We, we see God doing this in Scripture. We find consequential wrath, which basically means I do something dumb, I do something sinful. There's a response that we get from that. There's a, there's a pay for that. I'm sowing and now I'm going to reap the consequences of that. And sometimes God pours out his wrath, sometimes God shows his displeasure. But the wrath that we're going to talk about today is called the wrath of abandonment. And it's the scariest kind of wrath because it's when God basically says, you know what, I'm done, I'm done. I'm going to pull my presence away, I'm going to pull my blessing away, I'm literally going to let you experience the consequences of your own sins. I've tried to mold you. I've tried to encourage you. I've tried to give you the mind of Christ. I've tried to show you how you should live. But you want to live your own way and call your own shots, be your own God. So you know what? Have at it. And God does that to individuals. He does that to nations. He does that to people. And what you're going to find out today as we go through these passages, he also does that to his church. And that's the scariest thing 
of all. I believe we're living right now in the wrath of abandonment. It's almost like God has placed the word Ichabod over the church right now because more and more of his spirit is leaving and what we're having to do is manufacture some sort of esoteric emotional experience on Sunday to disguise as some sort of movement of God. It's the wrath of abandonment. We see this happening several times in Scripture. The classic example is Samson. You remember the story. You know, Samson... Uh, uh, has this gift, and he has this gift as long as he keeps this secret because it's this long hair, this Nazarite vow that he took that is the source of his uh, of his strength and power. He finds this woman, Delilah. Matter of fact, the first words you find Samson ever said in the Scripture is, go get that woman for me. He was a little on the... Um, little on the lustful side here. And so at the very end, of course, he was duped by Delilah. And let me just read a couple of verses here. This is from Judges 16. It says, And it came to pass that she, we're talking about Delilah, now pestered him daily with her words and pressed him so that his soul was vexed to death. And he should have just said goodbye, but he didn't. And he said to her, No razor has ever come upon my head, for I've been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaven, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like just any other man. Delilah, of course, had been taking money from Samson's enemies, Israel's enemies, to basically find out the source of his strength so they could destroy this judge of God. And when Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called to the Lord of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all his heart. So the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hand, verse 19, and she lulled him to sleep on her knees, having his head in her lap, and she called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head, and then she began to torment him. She began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson, and every time that's happened before, whether he's tied with ropes and that he's just burst those things and gone out and defeated his enemies, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before as other times and shake myself free. But the wrath of God's abandonment had come upon Samson, but he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And he went out and experienced what it was like to have God's presence leave. And you know the story. They took him and they blinded him and they paraded him. And he prayed, of course, at the end for God to give him strength one more time. And he brought down the temple on all these people that are partying. But the, the reality is, is thinking he had the power of God before, he went out and realized that he had nothing, nothing because of his sin and because of his carnality. In... Um, in Judges chapter 10, just six chapters earlier than that, it says, And so the Lord said to the children of Israel, who had sinned continually, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Haven't I done all these things for you? And also the Sidonites and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you, and you cried out for me, and I delivered you from their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and have served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. I am taking my hand of protection away from you. I'm not calling you a God-fearing Christian nation anymore. I'm, I'm removing my presence from you. Go out and cry to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your distress. And of course, you know that they couldn't, and they didn't. It's just the wrath of God's abandonment. 
We find this in Proverbs. I find this passage really compelling, and I wrote about it in my book, um, where all of a sudden, God, because they refused his rebuke, he removes his presence from them. It's a, it's an abandonment. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit on you and make my words known to you. Because, be, but because I have called and you have refused, implied, because I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded it, because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes, when your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call on me, but unlike before, I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me because this frightful abandonment of God had taken place. The wrath of God is when the abandonment wrath of God is when God takes his protection and presence away from us and literally lets us suffer the consequences of our own sin. You want it? You got it. You don't want a God, you don't want me to be, you don't want me to be God over you. You just want me to bless you and give you my favor and it doesn't work that way. You want to take the wide path, go for it. And God chastises his people by removing his presence. Literally the Lord gives us what we want. And when he does, it becomes a terrible thing. In Hosea, watch this. He's talking about Israel, and he's talking about the sins of Israel. Then he talks about Ephraim. And when it comes to Ephraim's sin, which is that of idolatry, he says this about Ephraim. Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Don't even try to, don't even try to, to talk to him. Don't even try to encourage him. Don't even try to bring him back into the faith. Let him, leave him alone. I'm done with Ephraim. Jesus said the same thing about the Pharisees, talking about blind guides. Let them alone. Well, well don't, shouldn't we encourage them? Shouldn't we point them the right way? Shouldn't we tell them they're wrong? No, just let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. It's this wrath of abandonment. Greatest example of the wrath of abandonment is these very familiar passages that we find in Romans chapter 1. And so I want you to turn to Romans 1 with me, and we're going to go through these together, beginning at verse number 16. But I, I've defined a couple Greek words here, and I've raised a few questions that are going to let you see that as you go through this, we've always had it taught, oh, this is just lost people. That lost people are so sinful that God just gives them up to their own sin, and they get worse and worse and worse. And it is true that there's like a three-stage journey downward towards this abyss into sin that men go and nations go. But I want you to realize as we go through this that he is also talking about the professing church. First part of this deals pretty much with lost people, but after that there's some statements the Lord makes that can only apply to Christians or to people who have claimed to be Christians. I mean, I mean, why is it that... Um, why is it that Christians are, Christian young people are as sexually active today as non-Christian young people? Why is that? I mean, what, how can that be? Where did the failure come from? Was it, is, is Christ not sufficient? Are we not presenting him as sufficient? I mean, why is that? Why is the carnality in the Christian church pretty much equal to the carnality in the lost, with the lost world? The divorce rate in America right now for professing Christians is greater 
than a divorce rate for people who aren't saved. And one of the reasons is because a lot of lost people are just not flat getting married anymore. But the fact is, is, is how can that possibly be? How can it be that, that, you know, in January 23rd, 1973, the Supreme Court ruled in Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton that it was okay to murder a child in the womb of its mother, even up into delivery, partial birth abortion, and how come in an entire generation the church has done nothing about it? We've had Christians that are that are have been presidents, and we've had good presidents and bad, but nothing ever changes. And we don't even talk about the issue anymore. We we don't we don't even care. Instead, what we get all upset about is the music's too loud or or I don't really like this, or the sermons are too long, or, I mean, why is that? What, what's happening here? Why, where is the, the power of Christ that lives in us? There's three incredible statements in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 124, the Lord says, therefore, based on some of the stuff we're going to look at, God gave them up. You know what? I'm, I'm done. I'm done. You know, this is what you want. Have at it. Knock yourself out, son. You know, I've, uh, I've done that with some, I've done that with, uh, people that I've counseled with. So I've done it with even members of my own family. You tell them and tell them and tell them and tell them and tell them. And they still want to go their own way. You know, knock yourself out. I'll be here to pick up the pieces because there will be pieces to pick up. And, and you let them go out. And, and you know that old adage, burnt hand learns best. You ever heard that before? You know, what it basically means is when you tell a kid not to touch a stove, and they want to do it as soon as they touch the stove and burn a hand. They learn. They don't do it anymore. You know, that's not loving in our culture today. It's exactly what God does. He gives us chance and chance and chance and chance to do what is right. Finally, he says, fine. You think you're going to find happiness outside of me? I will give you up to something. Two verses later. For this reason, we're going to talk about those reasons, God again gave them up. Two verses later, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And we find in Romans chapter 1, and again, we've always interpreted this as just lost people. I think you're going to see it a little bit different here. That, uh, that God has had enough. You've spurned my rebuke. You haven't listened to my wisdom. You've wanted to go your own way. You thought you could find happiness out there in sin. Go knock yourself out. And I'll be here to pick up the pieces when you return. It's exactly what the Lord, the Father, did with the prodigal son, if you remember. Romans 1, 16 and 17. This, of course, is how the church is supposed to respond. In the book of Romans, what Paul is doing, it's believed before he made his journey to Rome, what he did is he sent this letter to the church in Rome, laying out for him the gospel as he had been preaching it. It's a doctrinal book. It's a theological book. It's a powerful book. And he starts by talking about that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Why are you not ashamed of that? And I wonder if the church today is ashamed of that. Probably, because we don't really tell that many people about it, because they'll argue with us, or they're not interested in us, or they'll say this. Well, you call yourself a Christian? Well, your life's just like my life. I mean, you're a hypocrite. And so therefore, rather than not being a hypocrite, we just choose not to share Christ anymore. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? Because we understood what it was. It is the power. It's explosive dudamas. It's dynamite power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it. In what? In the gospel of Christ. In the context here. 
The righteousness is of, is of God is revealed from faith to faith. It is as written, the just shall live by faith. The very statement that, that moved Martin Luther to conclude salvation is by faith through grace, plus nothing and minus nothing alone. And if you want to know what the gospel is, and we won't look to it today, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, through 4, where it talks about that he died and was raised and buried and, and all that. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the gospel of Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, and as is written, the just shall live by faith. But what about the other people? What about those people who don't believe? What about those people who refuse? What about them? For, and whenever you see the word wrath of God, it's a frightening thing. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against somebody, against something. And the scripture says it is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. All of it. The black sins and the white sins. The murder and the lying and gossiping. All unrighteousness and all ungodliness of men. Well, what do these men do? Why is the wrath of God poured out on them? I mean, what sin have they committed? Who suppress the truth. How? In unrighteousness. Question. Um, does that mean that they know the truth and they suppress it? Or is God just talking about the gospel being the truth and their life responds against it or they try to shout it down or, or they suppress it themselves? Because it says what may be known of God, what can possibly be known of God, what he has revealed of himself to us is manifest not to them, but manifest in them. Now, now wait a second. The scripture says in the book of Romans, there's not one that seek after God, no, not one, not one. That the gospel of Christ, the cross of Christ, is foolishness, it's stupid, it's moronic, it's idiotic to those people who are perishing. But this passage says that there's a group of people that are suppressing the truth of the gospel, that God said he's already revealed the truth of the gospel. What can be known about God, what may be known about him, is manifest or revealed not to them, but in them. How does that happen to a lost person? How does, the, how does the, the, the truth of God manifest in them? And then it says, for God has shown them past tense it to them. So at some point in time before they began suppressing the truth, God had revealed himself in them, to them, somehow. Now, Paul's building an argument here, talking about the fact that all men are without excuse. But... Look what he says, verses 20 and 21. And then he talks, about, um, he talks about how God has revealed it to all people. And this answers the question that um, how can people who have never heard the gospel, how can God judge them, you know, they're going to hell because if they haven't heard the gospel, then they should be able to go to heaven. Well, if that's the case, then aborted babies are the most blessed of all because they've never heard the gospel, and they're guaranteed a place in heaven. If we let a baby live, there's a chance that they're going to hear the gospel and reject. I mean, the argument makes no sense at all. 
But what Paul is talking about here is the fact that, that God has revealed himself to him by the very creation that he's made. For since, remember he's done this past tense, for since the creation of the world, since time began, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Karen was shared with us as she was sitting on the porch and she was studying the Bible and she noticed this flock of geese and all of a sudden God revealed himself to her through that. And we see that in of a birth of a baby. We see that in a sunrise or a sunset. We see that in the intricacies of, of how God is. You, you can't study science or even just God's creation and not realize how marvelous the Creator is. It didn't come together by happenstance. I mean, like a whole bucket of bolts and I drop it from an airplane, and as soon as it hits the ground, it bounces one time, comes together, and creates a car. I mean, is that like ridiculous? Well, that will never happen. Well, it will if you do it every day for a million years. No, it's still ridiculous. You know, a creation needs a creator. It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. To what extent? How much is understood? Even his eternal power and the Trinity? Even the eternal power and the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and the combined Godhead are understood by just the creation that God has done? I mean, how does he do that? He must, he must quicken it to us. He, makes, he must make us understand somehow so that they, that those that are under his wrath, are without excuse. Why? Now watch this. You have a lost person who knows nothing about God, who the Scripture says... Um, God is not in his thoughts, that he doesn't seek after God. He knows nothing about God. And yet God says, if we're talking about just lost people here, God says that his invisible attributes, his eternal power, including the concept of the Godhead and the Trinity and the plurality of God himself as, as, as one but represented in three persons, that is clearly understood so they're without excuse. Well, why are they without excuse? Because although they, and this word is gnosko, it's not edo. It's not, oh, I, I know about God. I, I heard about him, you know, on the internet. This is gnosko. This is to choose, to approve, to embrace, to love, to know experientially. It's the same word where it says Adam knew his wife Eve. It's to know in the most intimate, personal God. How is lost people? who know nothing about God, how are they all they going to, how, how is it going to say, because they knew God? How does a man who the scripture says does not seek after God know him intimately and experientially? If this verse is only talking about lost people. Can't. Can't. Because although they knew God experientially, they, the ones who knew God, did not glorify him as God. Of course they didn't. They're lost. Lost people don't glorify him, nor were they thankful. For what? Why would a lost person be thankful for God who she doesn't even believe in, doesn't even believe he exists? But a saved person? Somebody who's had an affinity with the church? Somebody who has tasted of the heavenly gifts? Somebody who has, has, has had more than just an arm-length relationship with Christ? All of a sudden it begins to make a little sense. For although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile. Which means they weren't 
but now they are. They've become something they were not originally. They moved from one state of being to another. They became futile. They became stupid. They became foolish in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. A lost person's heart is already darkened. A lost person is already a fool when it comes to Christ. And it's really hard to make these verses just fit lost people. I know they do, but it could also mean something a little deeper. I mean, who are the they's in this verse? Lost people? Lost people who have an intimate, personal, gnosko knowledge of God to know Him experientially? What lost person do you know knows God experientially? None. None. That can't happen until the Holy Spirit comes to reside within you, and that doesn't happen until you're saved. What? How is God revealing His Godhead in a lost person and that lost person not be changed? When does God come into a lost person and reveal Himself in the inward man? He doesn't until salvation takes place. And if... I'm going to find some other words in here that are going to rock your world here. If, if this could also mean saved people, it sure is a picture of God's abandonment on His church. I mean, church, church is sad today. I mean, there's, it's this entrepreneur spirit where we've got all these multi, multi campuses and, you know, projecting these pastoral personalities on the big screen and, you know, the, and the world just gets sicker and sicker and sicker. I get, I get so disgusted when some movie comes out that, you know, it's a good Christian movie. It's only got 75 F words. And, you know, on Facebook, pastors go see it and they're talking, man, you need to go see this movie, man. It just rocks. It's really powerful. Well, what are you doing? I mean, where does that come from? It happens all the time. Over and over and over again. And our world gets darker and darker and darker as God begins pulling his presence away from the church. And pastors and church members become more carnal and carnal and carnal because we've got to somehow have some sort of feeling. I mean, I need to feel something when I come to church, otherwise I'm not going. And if I'm not feeling the spirit there because there's Ichabod on the church and the spirit is now gone or in the process of leaving, then 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 i got to feel something. So we're going to have a rock band experience. We're going to have movie clips and we're going to have dancers and we're going to have a really you know charismatic Tony Robbins kind of guy that's preaching. We're going to have light shows and all that kind of experience. I mean, I mean where does that come from? Karen and I were, I don't know what church we passed. We passed some church and saw a sign. And it says, this, this coming Sunday is old-fashioned Sunday. So everybody dresses up in old-fashioned clothes. I remember the first time Gary Moreland went to Elevation Church. Uh, he came back and told me that they were having Mafia Sunday. Everybody dressed up in Mafia clothes. You know, and what, what is, this is a church? No, it's just kind of a club experience. It's just something to make you feel kind of good. And our, and, our, and our life is full of that. The largest churches in America preach about you. They preach about your favor and what God's going to do for you and, and all that kind of stuff. And very seldom they exhaust Christ and his suffering and the suffering that we will have if we choose to live godly in him. All who desire to live godly in Christ will face persecution. Well, who are the they's? Well, they're lost people. Sure. Watch this. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of creeping things. They begin worshiping the creation more than the creator. That's the nugget. That's the key sin of sexual promiscuity. It is the sin of homosexuality, that we are, we are glorifying God's creation more than God himself. Then there's three steps the scripture lay out for us of this abandonment that takes place. And it starts with a lust, and then it moves into a fulfillment of that lust, into sexual immorality, and then the sin of um, homosexuality, which is really a curse on a nation where God has abandoned. It's not a symptom of a nation God has abandoned. It's really the curse of that nation, and we are seeped in it to our eyeballs, and it's only getting worse. And then, of course, there's a depraved mind where you can't even decide, you can't even choose what is right and wrong anymore, that, that everything seems okay. I watch the news media, and they have one conservative guy over here and one liberal guy over here, and they're talking about something. And it's, what, what, are you crazy? I mean, who makes this stuff up? People believe just, just bizarre things that, that defy logic, defy third grade math, and, and yet everybody's so depraved in the way they think. First step for God's abandonment, I want you to look at your own nation, I want you to look at your own family, I want you to look at your own life. The sexual immorality. We are saturated with sexual immorality. Therefore, because of this, God gave them up to what? To uncleanliness. The word means moral filth and lewdness. In what? In the lust of their hearts. How are they lusting in their hearts to dishonor them, their bodies among themselves? And the word dishonor means to literally treat with contempt. Everything on television is sold today, it seems like, by some sort of... Uh, sexual innuendo or, or some sort of lust and you've got I was watching I didn't get a chance to show Karen I'm watching this commercial and I don't remember what it was guy drives up and drives up in his car and a car windows down there's a dog in the front seat and the dog jumps out the window runs in the convenience store and grabs I don't know something to clean tires or something grabs something off the shelf and so guy says, don't do that. And the dog jumps out and he runs in the convenience store. The camera's now in the convenience store. There are two people standing there. All you can see them is waist down, looking something for something in the store. The dog kind of runs behind them. And both of those women are very scantily clad. Both of the people are scantily clad women. It was like a subliminal thing, you know, and, and, and everything is sold that way. I mean, sex just sells like crazy. I mean, as I shared with you, Maybe it was Sunday or two Sundays ago, that a recent study I read that of the 10,000 pastors, pastors now, that were surveyed, it was an anonymous survey so the pastors could answer um, without fear of reprisal, 40% of them said that they had looked at porn over the last month. I mean, it's everywhere. It's, people have it on their cell phones. I mean, it's, it's when, I, when I counsel with young people, when I counsel with people getting married, that's the major problem that we have is, I haven't counseled, I can't remember the last time I counseled someone who had not looked at porn. And now he's ready to marry this woman who has to meet the standard of his imagination. And then we wonder why we have so many problems today. 
Therefore God has also gave them up to moral filth, to lewdness, to uncleanliness, in the lust of their heart. It's what they want. To do what? To dishonor or treat with contempt their bodies among themselves. Described as, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Well, yes, lost people look at porn. Yes, lost people sleep around. Yes, lost people act like lost people. Why would we not expect lost people to act like lost people? But so do saved people in the tens of thousands, in the hundreds of thousands. And they come to church and nobody does anything about it. And nobody says a word about it. And a man comes in here who's dumped his wife and three kids and sits down at church and he's with his secretary and nobody says anything about it. Because we're not a holy place anymore. We're a club. We're, we're a collective. We're, we just kind of excuse the sins of each other. And we can't. I mean, God says, where's my presence? Where's holiness? It's experiencing the wrath of God's abandonment on the church and on the community and on a nation. Second one. We've gone from sexual immorality, pornea, to um, now a specific sexual immorality, homosexuality, which makes absolutely no sense to me at all. At all. Transgenderism, I, I can't even get my mind around it. You know, and, and Planned Parenthood comes out and says that they want to start teaching children in school that their, their sex, their gender is not determined by their genitalia. And everybody's okay with that. And it's just, it's just, it's been pushed down our throat the last 15 years. I mean, when the first Bush was president, did you ever think we'd have something like this happening? And look, it's just out of nowhere it came. The sin of homosexuality. It's a curse God gives to a nation who has walked away from him and he has walked away from them. Churches split. Denominations split over whether we should ordain lesbian women to be pastors. I mean, where is that coming from? And it happens everywhere. For this reason, second one, God gave them up to vile passions, disgraceful, shameful passions. For even, or the, it's almost an incredulous statement, or not only, or also, or do you realize that in addition to the men, the women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. That as shocking as homosexuality is for the men, do you even realize the first thing Paul says is women do exactly the same thing? So why does he list that first? Because when it comes to sexual desires, and when it comes to lust, more men look at porn than women look at porn. Um, when it comes to deviant sexual behavior, more men historically are sexually active, more than women are. That is rapidly changing. And when it comes to homosexuality, it's almost like a woman to become a lesbian has got to almost give up her mothering nature, her nurturing nature. Because we're talking about living in a relationship with another woman. We're talking about no child here. We're talking about everything that is inbred in a woman, the nurturing, the loving, the, and you know about this, you know, men carry their books like this, women cradle it to their breast. I mean, all of that is now gone. And they've sacrificed all of that for a, a, a sexual act or a, a lesbian relationship. And it's like Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit saying through Paul, it's getting this bad that we expect the men to be that way, but when the women 
are promoting lesbianism. The clock is ticking. And it is promoted everywhere today. Um, I always get disgusted with Fox News because it's supposed to be the good news network. And if you ever go to their website, you've got the main story at the front, and then you've got uh, three little blurbs. Anybody ever look at Fox News online? Three little blurbs underneath that, which are, which are regular news. Somebody let off a nuclear bomb or, you know, somebody did something to Trump or something like that. Then you've got these line items of news that's kind of old. Then at the very bottom, you've got two rows of just little boxes that you click, stories that are supposed to get you excited. And half of those have to do with some scantily clad woman talking about a breast job or somebody else coming out, some movie star coming out saying, hey, they're bisexual now or transgender or stuff of that nature. And even Fox News just is constantly pushing that kind of stuff because it sells. The men. Likewise, as incredulous as it is for the women, the men also, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust, in their appetite, in their longing, in their desire for one another. Men with men. You can almost see Paul going, literally, men with men, committing what is shameful. Literally, the word means what is indecent and obscene and receiving in themselves. That's amazing. Not to them, but in themselves, the penalty of the error that was due. Well, what does that mean? What do they receive in themselves? And, you know, people disagree about this. Maybe it's some sort of, you know, a hardened heart or something like that. Maybe it's AIDS. Maybe it's an STD. And, and so as I was preparing this, I just went to the CDC and I pulled up some statistics about sexually transmitted diseases. We don't talk about it that much because we're Christians and we don't expect that to happen. But uh, I think you're going to find this rather amazing. In the United States, right now, there are 50.5 million males and almost 60 million females with an STD. We have 328 million people in our nation. That is old people in nursing homes. That is children in the homes, too. And almost one-third of our population has an STD. That's shameful. I mean, that's, that's shocking. CDC said that 50% of these infections occur in young people between the age of 15 and 24, and they're not all non-church members. They're not. It happens. It's like... It's like we have an infected society right now. The CDC said that in by 2025, which is just seven years from now, eight years from now, that they estimated over half the people under the age of 24 will have a sexually transmitted disease. Which means to our young people, if they decide to be sexually active, to find their fulfillment out there in a lust-saturated society because the church or Christ or whatever wasn't enough to hold them to God, that the odds are that they're going to be with somebody who has an STD. And that's, that's shocking, is it not? Step three. We've gone from, we've gone from sexual immorality which really began during the hippie era and the free love era and all that kind of stuff is a, is a, is a reaction to the Vietnam War and stuff of that nature. It, you know, it incurred in the 70s and 80s and all of a sudden now it transformed into the second one, which is homosexuality, which we're, you know, in the full thrones of that. But we've moved from there to what happens after that and you have literally depraved mind. Where you, you don't even think straight anymore. You don't even care about biblical doctrine. You don't even care about what is right or wrong anymore. That everything becomes all messed up. Now watch this. If you think this is just for saved or lost people, watch this carefully. And even as they did not like to retain 
God in their knowledge. No lost person wants to retain God in their knowledge because first of all, they don't have God in their knowledge. Only saved people have God in their knowledge. And in order to retain something, I don't want to retain it anymore, means I had to possess it at one time. And even though they did not like, I don't recognize it as genuine, I don't think it's important, I don't want to retain, which implies in the Greek, a continual possession of God in their knowledge. This word is epignosis. It is a stronger word than gnosko. It is the most powerful word for knowing and knowledge in the Greek vocabulary. It means to know completely. It means to know to the fullest extent. It means to know more than anybody else know. That you've got the, you've got the knowledge and a PhD in your particular academic discipline. You know more than anybody. And no lost person ever has an epignosis knowledge of God. Never. That's only somebody who is been saved, or somebody who knows Christ, or somebody who made a profession. I mean, the the societal drop drop down in these three stages, went down in this this abyss of depravity, also includes the church. And the Lord says in His Word that the judgment begins in the house of God. Even though they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Well, no lost person doesn't even have that knowledge in the first place. Because of that, God gave them over to a debased mind, to a reprobate, unworthy, worthless, rejected, ignoble mind. To a mind that can't even listen to the things of God, to a mind that doesn't even matter anymore. We've seen people in this church that have come up and they've talked about how great God is and God has a plan for my life and I just love him more than anything and they've gone right off the rails. How, how can you do that? I mean, what, what are you doing here? I mean, was that not real? Well, sure it was, but I gave myself one of these sexual lusts and I wanted these desires and now I don't even think clear anymore and God just wants me to be happy and if sin makes me happy, then that's what God wants me to do. And then people start saying, God told them things. Well, God told me to do this and God told me to do that. We've had this conversation with Jerry for 20 years. 20 years. Well, God just wants me to be happy. So I'm living with a woman that's not my wife in a, in a constant state of adultery for 15 years. And in his mind, it's okay. Because he doesn't even think that way anymore. He doesn't even, can't even conceive of what God's talking about here. God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. They're being filled with what? All unrighteousness and sexual immorality. This is pornea, where we get the word pornography. And wickedness, which is evil, maliciousness. I love this. This is, this is how, this is how the guys that put out the Greek interliners in the, in the Greek word studies, this is how they define that word. Just badness. Can't even come up with a word that talks about how bad it is. They're just, that's just bad. It's just badness. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual morality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, and that's, that's wickedness as a force of habit, as a, as a knee-jerk reaction. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and evil-mindedness. They are whisperers. Oh, like we've never heard those people in church before? Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. Undiscerning, here's all the uns, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Who, now watch this, knowing the righteous judgment of God, 
what do lost people know the righteous judgment of God? Which are, and here's the judgment, that those who practice such things are deserving of death. They not only do them, practice them, but they approve of those who are just like them. Now this can apply to lost people, but the amazing thing about it is it more clearly applies to us. Paul is writing his letter to the church, and he's talking about how God reveals himself through nature and how nobody is without excuse. And, and then he talks about what happens to some believers who just go their own way, and God gives them over. I've, I've tried to bring you into the fold. I've tried to, tried to bring you back to me. I've tried to tell you how much I love you. I've tried to encourage you. I've tried to strengthen you. I've done everything, and you've done nothing. Just spit in my face the Proverbs passage, then go. Go. Knock yourself out. Call on me fervently, but I'm not going to answer anymore. Why don't you call on the gods that you're serving? Why don't you find your happiness out there? And it's, a, it's the wrath of God's abandonment that takes place in the church and in the families and in you and I. So, what are we supposed to do? I mean, I mean, this is happening today. This is happening right now. This is happening here. This is happening in our nation. And you know, one of the reasons why God has blessed America is because of the holiness of his church and because of our support of Israel. Two promises. And you know what? Just because we have a man in the White House who supports Israel doesn't mean Israel's being supported. You know that. And the fact of the matter is that the church has become anything other than Christ-like today. And God's presence and his abandonment of his grace is happening even now, which means when God brings judgment upon his church and judgment upon his nation, even innocent people suffer collateral damage. It happens. It happened in the Third Reich. It happens everywhere. And you and I need to be prepared. There is something we can do. And I shared this with you um, Sunday. It is a, it's a, it's a principle that worked with Israel and also works with us today. It's a very classic passage, 2 Chronicles 7.14. If who? My people. Just the Jews? No. My people who are called by my name. That includes us too. If my people who are called by my name will do a few things, well, they'll humble themselves, absolutely, Lord. They'll, they'll pray, absolutely, Lord. They'll seek my face, absolutely, Lord. But here's the killer. They will turn from their wicked ways. What? So my people who are called by my name are involved in wicked behavior? Absolutely. That's the picture of the church today. It's a picture of the, of the Christian today. It's a picture of you and me today. How many of us are tens spiritually in here? None. How many of us are eights? Hmm, quite a few. How many are six or sevens? I mean, that's a sin. It's a sin not to be closer to the Lord today than you were yesterday. True? It's a sin for me not to love my wife more today than I loved her yesterday. Yeah, I really loved Karen a lot three years ago. How about now? Eh, it's 50-50. Yeah, well, what, what husband does that make me? Oh, you're a great husband. And I'm a terrible husband. Well, you need to get back and love her like you did. I mean, we understand that in temporal relationships, it works the same way spiritually. If my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways, then... God will hear from heaven and will forgive not the lost people's sin, but their sin and heal their land. 
And just so that you'll see that this deals with the church is because you had now in the church of Rome, you had people saying, yeah, well, that's not me, that's him, that's Wayne, that's Karen, that's Debbie, that's their sin, that's not my sin. Nobody says, well, that's lost people. We don't compare ourselves with lost people because we know they're lost, we know they're sinful. Instead, we compare ourselves to each other and look at chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. I'm going to read these first eight verses and quit. Everything that we've just looked at, he starts out with, therefore, Therefore, based on these three levels of degradation, based on this, you know the things of God and you reject the things of God, therefore you are inexcusable. You're without defense. You're without apology, O man. Talking to believers here. Whoever you are who judge. For whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. How? For you who judge practice the same things. Jesus talked about that, the, the log and the speck in their eye. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. He's talking about the church. We're not judging, he's not judging lost people. He's talking about judging each other. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, that doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? Well, I don't murder and I'm not a homosexual, and, and I, don't, uh, I don't steal things from people. But I'm prideful, and I'm arrogant, and I'm unloving, and I'm unforgiving, and I'm disobedient to parents. There's no parents, and I have inexcusable behavior, and I have hidden sins, and I'm not going to let anybody else know about that, and I'm full of jealousy and envy and hate. I invent ways to do things and manipulate situations. For me, it's the same sins. It's the same thing. And the church is guilty. You and I are guilty of this. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long sufferings, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impotent heart, because of your stubbornness and your, your, the dry heart that you are and your unrepentant heart, he tells the church that you are storing up you're laying up for future use for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. And the words deeds here, as I've shared with you before, it literally means the result of employment. It's something that's expected of you. God expects Christians to act like Christians. True? And if you really want to know how a Christian is supposed to act, ask a lost person. Ask him. Ask my brother. Hey, Ken, how a, how a Christian supposed to act? Should Christians drink? No. Not if you claim to be a Christian. Should Christians swear? No. Should Christians sleep around? No. Should Christians lie? No. Should Christians steal? Should Christians gossip? Should Christians worry? Well, not if you believe God lives in you. If I believe God lives in me, I wouldn't worry, but I don't, so I'm struggling. But you say you have God living in you. Why are you worrying? I mean, it makes that, that, that makes no sense at all. Where's the God, the Christ in you? And if you want to find out how Christians are supposed to live, ask a lost person. It's the most convicting thing in the world because they're going to give you this litany of stuff we preach but fail to live. It says he'll render to each one according to his deeds. Now what will he render? Eternal wrath or eternal life to those who by patient continuance, perseverance, endurance, 
bearing up under the strain in doing good, seek for glory, honor, and in immortality. Man, God, you, you, you struggle and you strive to the point of shedding blood. You live this Christian life like it, like it means something rather than trying to build your little empire on earth and, and God honors that. But to those who are the opposite, for those who are contentious, for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, what is stored up for them is indignation and wrath. And the word indignation means almost flared nostrils, like that angry, breathing through those nostrils. And tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, to the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, because as Paul was trying to explain in his letter, there is no partiality with God. Now listen very carefully. We are under the wrath of God's abandonment as a nation. Can't you see him beginning to pull his blessings away? I mean, we can't agree on anything. I mean, if our Congress got together and wanted to vote on whether the sky was blue, 30 senators would vote against it. It's not blue, it's aqua. We can't agree on anything. We're where our hearts are cold. We become a nation. It's not even you know, communicating anymore. I love going to a restaurant, and I love to watch a couple, maybe three or four people sitting at a table, and all of a sudden they come up and they take their order, and they have to talk to the waitress because they're giving the order. And as soon as they do, they pull out their phones. And they start playing on their phones or, or texting on their phones. And what are you doing? I don't want to engage. I, I feel safe behind my little social media kind of deal. I, I'm just I'm checking something that's really not that important because I don't want to engage in you. I don't really know what's going on in your life, and I don't want you to know what's going on in my life. And and the church functions exactly the same way, and it's horrible, and it's only going to get worse. And as God begins pulling His presence away from the church first, it will affect the nation. And when He does then all of a sudden we'll find that his protection will also come away from our nation and we'll begin to experience the consequences of our own sins. And we'll find that there'll be crop failures and we'll find that there'll be economic collapses and we'll find that the things won't turn out as well as we think they will and we'll find who knows what's going to take place. And when those things happen, they affect good people and bad people. But as God pulls his presence away, there's an opportunity for those people who cling towards him even tighter to shine like the stars of heaven, to, to really stand out as a true believer in Christ. To no matter what the world throws me, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to fret. I'm going I'm to stand up for what is right. I'm going I'm to live for him, come what may, even if I have to do it alone. And I think those were the, those were the people, the early church fathers during the you know, the second church age that we talked about uh, Sunday in the book of Revelation, those were those early church fathers who stood up and, and I don't care if you throw me in prison or throw me to the lions or burn me at the stake. You know, here I stand, I will not recant. This is who I am. Not weeny Christians, but strong Christians. And you and I have that opportunity. Individually, we can't do it as a church. We can only do it individually. And if we come together as a body of individual believers who are sold out to Christ, then our church becomes sold out to Christ. It is the greatest time ever to live for him in this nation. Because his, he is abandoning the church, he is abandoning our nation, he is abandoning our culture, and it's an opportunity for you and I to absolutely shine. 
And the question is, are you willing to pay that price? Because it will be a price. All who desire to live godly in Christ, remember the rest of it? Will suffer persecution. And you will suffer persecution not only from the world, but from the church. Because nobody wants to shine any brighter than the least committed in the congregation. And so let me encourage you, as we see that day approaching, as we talk more about prophecy, to realize the rapture could occur tomorrow, could occur today. This wrath of abandonment is taking place now. It's been taking place for a while, but it's, it's, like, an, it's like an increasing in intensity right now. And you and I need to truly determine that if we were brought up before a judge and accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Amen? Let me pray.